we haven't been in the book of Acts. The last time I had the privilege of preaching, we were in Acts 6 and 7. thought I'd go backwards a little bit and focus on a few truths, especially prominent to our Reformation history. Now, as we find ourselves in Acts, and as you're turning there, uh, I'll just go ahead and let you know where we're going. We'll read the passage and then ask God for his help in understanding these scriptures and then begin to look at the passage together. So, if you would, please follow along as I read in Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 1 through the end of the chapter. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us, as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, The God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Please pray with me. Almighty Father, we are a needy people. 
We need you now to teach us from your word. Please humble us, train us, correct us, rebuke us. Make us wise by your wisdom, by your way, by your means, by your word. Please let the Spirit do this work in us, for we cannot do it on our own. We need you now. Please help us in Christ's name. Amen. As you look at this passage in Acts 3, uh, we know that it follows uh, and is part two of the book of Luke. So Luke is the author of the gospel according to Luke. Luke, who wrote that gospel, was also, also the author of the book of Acts. The recipient for both books is also the same, Theophilus. Luke wrote the gospel according to Luke to his recipient, Theophilus, and those whom Theophilus would share the book to, that they might be sure and have confidence in the things that they had been taught concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the book of Acts is separate in purpose. You see, a gospel has one type of focus, and the book of Acts has another. The distinction is this. The gospel, like the other three gospels, the gospel according to Luke, is a focus on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's, in summary, what gospel accounts are. But the book of Acts is based on that, focusing on the foundation, one, and two, the expansion of God's church. The foundation and the expansion of God's church. And so it helps us to see this because we have, we have this flow, this linear flow of history happening. Jesus took on flesh, and then he lived and he ministered, he died on the cross, he rose from the grave, and then in Acts chapter 1, what we have is we have Jesus saying, my apostles and disciples, those who are going to continue the work in my name on earth of the kingdom of God, wait for the Holy Spirit to be poured out. And so in Acts chapter 1, as we come up to Acts chapter 3, in Acts chapter 1, you have Jesus saying, wait for the Spirit, the promised gift of God the Father. And then Jesus ascends into heaven with the promise to return. And then the Holy Spirit is poured out in Acts chapter 2, empowering, enabling, gifting God's church to be able to carry forward the expansion and the foundation of the church. And then what you have is the Spirit is poured out, and then you have Peter's sermon at Pentecost, where thousands were converted by the gospel clearly explained. And then we have ourselves here, we find ourselves in Acts chapter 3, a miracle taking place in the book of Acts. And here's what I want you to see. If you look at verse 6, Peter says to the lame beggar, I do not have silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. And I would argue that from this passage that we have a broken beggar who's made a beneficiary. A miracle that demonstrates us how men and women are saved, how they come to faith. We get to see the goodness of how someone who is in need, a broken beggar, broken physically, broken financially, broken regarding his spiritual state, is made well, is made strong, is made able to praise God and glorify him as he was originally intended to do, the purpose for his existence. And so in summary, we have a story of a broken beggar healed as an object lesson for the audience that Peter would preach to later on in Acts chapter 3. So this is my question for you this morning. With that context, with that background, how are broken beggars made well? How are those who have no money made rich? How are those who have no salvation made to have salvation? How are we to come by salvation? I would argue it's three ways from the passage. One, it's not by man's strength alone. You, broken beggars are not made well by their own strength, but by, by the strength of God. Two, it's in the form of covenant that God heals. 
It's in the form and in the format of covenant, by the, he, uh, the vehicle of covenant that God heals. And three, it's in accord with Scripture. God is faithful and he's consistent in the way that he operates throughout all of his history. And it's in accord with Scripture and the truth that we see referring to God that God acts. So if you would, look at verse 12. You see, Peter heals this lame beggar, and we see that he has salvation, and we see that he's healed and made strong, and he dances in front of an audience of Jews, and he goes into a temple setting, and everybody recognizes him, and he's made well. And the people, in verse 12, they start gathering around Peter, and they start gathering around John, and they start saying, look, that's the man that was at the front that's always been begging at the gate, asking for money. We know that he can't walk. We are witnesses to this. We know that he can't walk. But yet here he is, healed, standing. And they know that it was Peter who spoke the words. And they know that it was through the apostles that this miracle happened. But Peter has to correct them from the very beginning. And he says, it wasn't by my strength, not by my power, not by my holiness, not by my piety. So it is with you and I. It's not by our strength. It's not by our power. It's not by our holiness. Not by our ability to keep the law that we're made well, made right with God, that we're saved. But then by who? If it's not by Peter, if it's not by piety, if it's not by the keeping of the law that we're saved, then how are we saved? Peter answers in verse 13. He says, go there with me. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, it was God who did it. God by the instrument of the apostles, God by the instrument Peter, God healed this man and made him well. And so God took someone who couldn't help himself to show how, how much he had need, how great his need was, and to exemplify that only God and God alone could have created this miracle, could have done this work. And it's so that Peter can teach the people that he speaks to. You see, that we, our attention is drawn to God, and in verse 16, if you go there, what does Peter say? He says, in his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. We're on the eve of the actual day of, uh, that we celebrate the Reformation. This is Reformation Sunday. Tomorrow is October 31st. And we remember the truths of the history of the church that were made clear but stood even before the time of the 1500s when Martin Luther nailed the theses to the wall. You have Peter proclaiming the same truth that Luther just re-emphasized, reiterated, made clear for the church again. Reform the church to believe the truths that we find here in Acts chapter 3. If I were to draw your attention to the first three solas, the first three solas, you would see that it's by grace implicitly. How do we know that? In verse 16, it says, it's by faith in his name. Anytime you see the word faith in the Bible, you've got to think back one step, grace. Faith is a gift given by God. It's the grace, it's the mercy of God for man into salvation. So God, in his grace, gives faith as a gift. So we know that grace is implied as something present in this passage. The grace of God is what healed this man, is what gave him salvation. But it's through faith. There's their second solo right there. By grace, through faith. It's through faith in who? In Jesus Christ, in Christ alone. And there's your third sola. It's in Christ alone that we're saved. Why does this matter? Because people will tell you today that there are many ways to God. They will tell you that there are many paths to God. But there is one path, one way, one name by which you can be saved. 
And that name is Jesus Christ. It's by Christ and Christ alone. Faith in Christ. The Christ that we were given by grace. And the faith that we were given by, by grace from God to believe in him. It's Acts 4 that tells us there is no under name in heaven by which men can be saved. When we come to the book of Acts, it's known. The book of Acts is known for miracles. Miracles that happen in a special time of the church, in the founding of the church, in the moving forward of the church, in the expansion of the church. But if I were to ask you, how would you define a miracle? If I were to ask you for one or two sentences to define a miracle, how would you describe it? You might struggle to come up with a very concise, tight explanation on the spot. But we can work towards a definition. Would you agree that a miracle is something that exists outside of the power of man, outside of his ability to perform? It's something extraordinary, extraordinary. It's something great, divine, miraculous. That's what a miracle is. And when we see the miracle here, the miracle is taking place over, takes place for the benefit of this beggar to demonstrate that it was not in the power of this beggar to heal himself. Now, what's wonderful about that, what's wonderful about the power of this is that Peter uses this as an illustration to show and confirm God's message for Peter to be confirmed as God's messenger. You see, miracles have a special purpose in the Bible. They confirm both the messenger and the message carried by the messenger. It works like this. Let's say there's a king on a battlefield, and he's dying on the battlefield, and he needs to appoint who is going to be the next king of the kingdom. He's got two sons, and they're twins, and he's going to pick one. And he's going to send a message back to his castle and say, this is who I've appointed to be king after me. This is who my successor will be. But the only person available to deliver that message is a peasant in rags who is on the battlefield. And the king grabs him by his rags and he says, carry this message to the castle and tell them, this son will be king. If that peasant goes back on his own power, by his own strength, without any sign that he's coming from the king and carries that message, will they believe him? Likely not. They wouldn't, right? By what grounds would they believe him? By what status? What authority? But now if the king takes off his signet ring, the one by which he seals the laws of the kingdom, and he hands it to the peasant and say, they won't believe you if you go by your own power. But if you carry my ring into the castle with you and say this message is from the king, here is the sign of my proof. Here is how you know this message is from the king, that I am an authoritative messenger with an authoritative message. That is how miracles work. They confirm the messenger and the message carried. Peter is an apostle. Peter is a messenger. Not by his own power, not by his own piety, not by his own strength. Yet he carries the truth of God as commissioned by Christ. And the miracle is a sign that he is truly that. And then we have to ask, in verse 15, what are apostles? Peter says, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Apostles are witnesses of the life, death, and resurrection, the ascension, the promise of the return, the inheritors of the gospel of Christ. The apostles witnessed who Christ is, the work that he accomplished. They make clear the gospel, but also importantly, they establish the early teaching of the church. They clarify the gospel for us. They put safeguards in place. They say, this gospel, not this message, this truth, not this interpretation. They give us the foundations that we rely upon today. It was a temporary office. It was a fixed office. It was for a specific purpose at a specific time in the beginning of the church. 
And so when you think about the apostles, this is why it's important. Think about a ship that's going from England to Washington, D.C., and it's going across the Atlantic, and it's got to cover thousands of miles. You know that if that ship is off by just a few degrees at the outset, it's going to land far from its intended destination. It might, might land up in Philadelphia. It might land somewhere up north in Maine or Boston, right? But if it's outset, if its original course is on track, it has the opportunity to reach its final des- destination, right? That's what we have when we receive the teaching of the apostles at the beginning of the church. They are the church's uh, foundational teaching unto Christ. And so when Christ commissioned him, Peter and the rest of the apostles, he said, you are going to establish the teaching of the church so that in 2022, the church would still have my truth and know how to worship me and praise me rightly, how the church should operate, how we should gather. That's a wonderful blessing from God, ordained by God, overseen by God, carried out by God throughout history. But also we see Peter reflecting Christ in his character. Did Christ ever in the New Testament, did he ever during his earthly ministry heal a lame and broken person, heal a blind, heal a wounded? Did he ever free someone from demon possession? Were those miracles they were? And so we see Peter doing what Christ did by the power of Christ. He gives credit to Christ. He points to Christ and says, not by my strength, but by Christ. I look like Christ because he's powered me. He's enabled me to do so. And in a similar way, though distinct from the apostolic office, when you look like Christ when you live, when you praise God rightly, when you give generously, when you serve your neighbor, when you serve the church, when you think holy thoughts, when you teach holy things, when you raise holy families, when you work unto the glory of God in your day-to-day jobs, that too is by the power of God and credit should go back to him. Follow the examples of the saints that went before us. Follow the examples of saints that have even come after those like uh, the Apostle Peter, like Martin Luther, who were ready to defend the truth of the church for the benefit of the saints in their time and the saints in the future. That requires that we know the scriptures. And so we say that it's not by man's strength that the lame beggars are healed. But how else are they healed? If it's not in the negative, what about in the positive? It's in the form of covenant. Go to verse 25. In verse 25... Peter says, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers. And if I were to ask you, which covenant does he go to first? He goes to the Abrahamic covenant. He goes to the Abrahamic covenant. Little application. Where is Pastor Aaron in his preaching right now? Where is he in his teaching on Sundays? Genesis, the Abrahamic covenant. So as we understand the covenant, we can know now looking at Acts that this has relevance all the way to the future of the Bible, all the way to the New Testament all the way to the book of Acts, all the way to the founding and the expansion of the church, we go back to the Abrahamic covenant for reference. That's how important the covenants are. That's how important the covenants are. So make sure you're paying attention to the covenants. Make sure you're paying attention to God's promises, working to understand them. The church makes resources available to you. I actually, uh, as we talked about miracles, even in passing this morning in your Table Talk magazine, there is a whole article on miracles by Dr. J.B. Fesco, who's a teacher at one of the Reformed seminaries that some of our pastors of our denomination come from. And he confirms exactly what I just shared with you, that miracles confirm the messenger. And he speaks about other things that miracles are. So when you have questions about the Bible, and most people have questions about miracles, how they work, what they're for, go to trusted resources to learn more about them. 
It's your Christian responsibility to learn and to study, to know God more so that you could praise him better. A famous thinker of olden days, his name is Anselm, and he described the Christian life like this. He said, the Christian life is faith-seeking understanding. Faith-seeking understanding. Peter says you need to understand the Abrahamic covenant. You need to know the things of the Old Testament to know more about God today. And when we say faith-seeking understanding, remember, faith is grace. So by grace, faith is given, and it's faith that we seek to show up by studying understanding. And so you're seeking, you're pursuing, you're running after what understanding? Truth. If we say it can be understood, we're saying it's intelligible, it's rational, it's, it's uh, something that you can comprehend, at least in part. God has made things and given us scripture that we might actually truly know him and be confident in what we know about him. But we have to admit that divinity can escape our understanding at times, that the finite cannot contain the infinite. But still, we need to pursue God and we need to pursue his truth and we need to pursue him in his truth, his word. Let's talk about the application of covenant for just a moment. How far does covenant reach? What about people outside of churches? What about people who aren't growing up in the faith? What about people who don't get to study the word on a regular basis? Are they included in the scope of covenant? Look at verse 23. It says, And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Every soul is included in regards to the scope of the covenant. Every soul, believer and unbeliever. Those from the beginning of time all the way till the end of time. Every individual, every person is covered by the scope of the covenant. Either you are of God's covenant people or you are not of God's covenant people. Either you are for God, with God, belong to God, or you are against him, his enemy. And it says that there is a curse for that. So I ask you, what are the two sides of covenant? You have blessing and you have curse. Blessing and curse are the two sides of covenant. What, is this, what are the blessings mentioned here in this passage? To belong to God, to belong to his covenant promises, to belong to him by grace, through faith, in Christ. Verse 20 and 21, it says that you will be refreshed by the presence of God. Let me ask you, is the presence of God a blessing to an unbeliever? No, that is terror, that is judgment, that is horror, that is pain, that is suffering, because they do not enjoy the presence of their enemy, God Almighty. But if they belong to God, if they've been captured by the covenant, if they've been captured by Christ, if they've been won by the work of the Spirit and the application of the blood of Christ, then all of a sudden being in God's presence is a joy, it's a blessing, it's, it's restorative, it's refreshing. And then in verse 21, it also talks about the restoration which Christ will accomplish. He has restored you in spirit and won you for the kingdom, and you are sealed by the spirit, sealed by the blood, sealed by the baptism. You are sealed by the signs, and yet there's a greater fulfillment that awaits us. There's a greater realization where there is no more sin, no more tears, no more suffering, no more sickness, and that is awaited as well. That is part of the restoration that awaits us in the future. Those sound like blessings to me. Those are wonderful blessings, promised in the Old Testament and promised in the New. Praise God for the blessings that await us and the blessings that have already been bestowed upon us as God's people. But what about the curse side? Look at verse 23 again. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. It is not destruction as you would think of a cease to exist. You are not ceasing to exist, but it's eternal suffering. It's eternal pain. It's suffering so much that you wish that you did not exist. That is the penalty 
for being against God and the blessings of his covenant, for being against the Savior that God has sent. It would be better to bow before God, to accept blessing, and to have your sins blotted out, put away with. But what about the culpability of this group he's speaking to? You see, it's a Jewish setting, it's a Jewish context. And what you see is that in verse 17, he says, you were ignorant. He's talking to the Jews, and he's saying, you killed the Messiah. You didn't even know who it was. You put him on the cross. You hated his holiness so much that you put him on a cross. Your sin is the reason he died. Now, we know that in personal application, Christ died for our sins as well. That He was on the cross because we sinned as well. But in the historical sense, the Jews actually put him on the cross. They actually were the reason that he went to death instead of Barabbas, that he was not released instead of the murderer that was set free. And whenever you look, it says, uh, Peter is essentially saying, do you want to use the excuse of circumstance? Do you want to say, I didn't know that was the Messiah? Do you want to say you didn't know that was Jesus? He doesn't want them to get hung up there. He says, even if you didn't know then, it's no longer a valid excuse, because I'm telling you now, You've heard the gospel now. You know who Christ was now. You have the chance to turn and repent now. He says, if that was an excuse that you would cling to, it's no longer a valid excuse because you have heard the gospel. And if I have in any way explained the gospel clearly this morning, that's true for us as well, that we are accountable to God for the gospel that we have heard, whether we have believed it, whether we have lived in light of it, whether our life reflects the gospel that we have heard preached to us. Do our lives reflect Christ? I want you to think about their culpability, their accountability like this. Because there's a sense in which they didn't comprehend that Jesus was the Messiah. Right? There was even a time that Peter did not comprehend the Messiahship of Jesus. Let's say you have a brick. <clears throat> you have a brick and there's a fence right here. And there's a window on the other side of that fence. Let's say it's your neighbor's uh, window that goes into their kitchen. If you don't know that window's there and you look at that brick and you want to get it out of your yard and you toss it over the fence and it goes through the window, are you still accountable for paying for that broken window? Yeah, I bet your neighbor thinks so, right? You're going to pay for that window. He may come out mad if you interrupt their dinner and glasses shattering over the kitchen table, over their food. But if you say, oh my goodness, I didn't know that that window was there. There's a little bit of latitude there. There's a little bit of charity expected there, right? But... Let's say that you've been in that kitchen several times of your neighbor's house, and then you picked a fight with him, and then you look at that brick in your hand, and you think, I bet I could hit that window from here, and you toss it over, and you break the window. Are you more accountable for that broken window then? Yeah. Would you still pay for it? Yeah. But will your neighbor be as likely to relent to forgive you? Not as likely, because you knew beforehand, you premeditated, thought about beforehand the atrocity which you would do. Peter is putting them in that second situation here. He's saying, don't commit the same offense twice. And for us Christians here today, we broke much more than God's window. You see, God's very son, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh, was broken for us. When Pastor Aaron breaks that bread, think about the body of your Savior being broken for you because of the sin that we committed, because of the sin in Adam that we inherited, the one who represented us, but also because of our actual sin that we commit in our real lives. All answerable to God. Each of us is culpable. But if Christ has paid your debt, you can have restoration 
You have that. You possess that. It belongs to you. You have refreshment in God's presence. The one who would judge you now says, come into my house. You are one of mine. That is the blessing of God through Christ. So we said that the lame beggars are healed not by their own strength. We said that they are healed in the form of covenant. But third, in accord with Scripture, and if you've been keeping track, that's your fourth sola in reference to the Reformation, the truth that was made clear again in accord with Scripture. You see, Peter takes these Jewish audience, this Jewish audience on a tour of the Old Testament. It's a common strategy of preaching to the Jews. In verse 22, he goes to Moses. In verse 17, he goes to the prophets. In verse 13, he goes to the patriarchs of the Old Testament. In verse 11, the building that they're even in is called Solomon's Colonnade or Solomon's Portico, the, the row of columns that uphold the structure that they're standing beneath, right? Even the building that they're in testifies to the fact that they need to know and have reference to the Old Testament. And then in verse 24, it speaks of Samuel the prophet and the others that followed in his wake, Right? Peter says you've got to know the scriptures because they tell you what to expect, what to believe. The Old Testament points forward to the new, and the new makes clear the old. They're interconnected. They can't be separated. We need them both. And in verse 18 and 24, if I'd ask you how much of the scriptures, how much of the Old Testament tells us about what would happen in the New Testament, verse 18 and 24 both say all the prophets. You see, because the entirety of the Bible, old and new, is one story from one author, it's one book of one redemption through one Savior from one God. You cannot separate what God has brought together. You cannot take apart what God says stands as one. That's also true for your salvation. When God says, I am united to you, like a husband to a wife is Christ to the church. If you are redeemed, you belong to the church. You are inseparable from Christ and his salvation. You, you cannot be taken away, pulled away from him. That salvation belongs to you for eternity, permanently. And then we need to look just at a particular context here. In verse 26, Peter says, God sent him, Jesus, to you first. And what he's saying is that God has given you priority in hearing the gospel, priority in hearing the truths of the scriptures, advantage in hearing them first. See, Deuteronomy 14, 2, and Amos 3, verse 2, both describe Israel and the Jews as God's chosen people. They were a people chosen to show God's grace to the nations. They were a people sh uh, chosen to show God's holiness to the nations, to show what it's like to belong to God's people. And we know how they did with that. They didn't do very well. In fact, they failed miserably. Yet God's grace was true, yet he kept a remnant, kept a saved people, and he still does that today. Is still redeeming people to himself today. But yet, the Jews do have this special relationship to, the, to God and the history of the Old Testament. How? Paul says in Romans 3 that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. That means they had the scriptures. They were instructed about what to believe about God. Sounds like our catechism. What do the scriptures principally teach? And it's what God is to believe concerning man and what uh, God requires of man. Right? What, what man is to believe concerning God and what God requires of man. And so they were entrusted with covenant promises, covenant teaching. But is that true for your children here today? Was that true for you if you were raised in the church? Do the children who are raised in a scripture, Bible, gospel teaching church have an advantage over those who are not? Absolutely. 
they get to hear the gospel. They get to be taught the scriptures. They get to celebrate things like the Reformation and learn the history of the church. They get to see the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper performed in front of them and explained. But with that comes the responsibility to seek understanding, to believe, and to live in light of those truths. But that's a responsibility that we can actually fulfill and live in light of, empowered by Christ, by the power of the gospel of Christ, by the work of the Spirit, not on our own strength, with understanding of covenant, in accord with Scripture. So we get to the so what. Some people say, what is the therefore, therefore? Look at verse 19. And in verse 19, it says, Therefore repent, or repent therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, and so on and so on. And it says, repent and turn. Turn from your sins. When you turn from something in the Bible, you have to turn towards something else. You turn from your sins. You turn from evil. You turn from wickedness, empowered by the Spirit, and you turn towards God. You take pleasure in him. You take pleasure in his law. You take pleasure in his scriptures. You take pleasure in his commandments and his expectations for you, knowing that he's now enabled you in the Spirit to do what he requires of you in Christ. And then he says, your sins will be blotted out. The weight of guilt will be wiped away. A clear conscience. Joy. When we talk about joy being refreshing God's presence, let me ask you, is it a joy for an unbeliever to be in the presence of God? It's not. It is the exclusive joy of the Christian to be in the presence of God and to take pleasure in that. So when other people say, I can't wait to get to heaven, but they're not believers, they don't profess Christ, they don't acknowledge their sin before God. What, you have to ask, what do they think heaven is? Where do they think they're going? What do they think it's going to be like to stand in the presence of a perfect, holy, holy, holy God? Peter says, you killed the holy and righteous one, the holy one. See, Peter is saying that they killed Jesus, who is also God. The holy one, the righteous one, is a title for God in the Old Testament. Je- Peter is very particular to use that statement, saying, you killed very God of very God in a sense. Right? And then we have hope of Christ's return. Something ahead of us to look forward to. That's what the scriptures tell us. That's why we need to know them. Because they tell us why we endure through trials until we have glorified bodies, until we see Christ come back again. We know that it's going to happen because we have the sure promise of God. And what's the purpose of all of it? To the glory of God alone. God does all of this work all of this redeeming, all of this forgiving, the sacrificial atonement, the death of Christ, the cross, the whole story for the glory of God alone that we might praise him and give him due glory to the utmost because he is worthy, he is worthy, he is worthy. Do you view God as worthy like that? You see, God's name is mentioned explicitly 12 times in 26 verses of this chapter. And even more so, his name is implied. Even more so, he's referenced. You cannot escape God's presence in this passage, God's relevance in this passage, the fact that God is the central character of this passage. In the name of Christ, it's no mistake. And so, if I were to tell you to go back to where we started in verse 6, when Peter says, I do not have silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. And he heals the beggar by the power of the name of Christ through faith. Did that beggar receive more than gold, more than the value of gold, more than the value of silver, that he received something that cannot be measured in value. He did. And if you belong to Christ, dear Christians, 
I'm so grateful that so many of you do. We have something to celebrate because we have been granted grace upon grace in Christ to celebrate. And so I'll close by reading 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 uh, through 9. It's just a summary of essentially what we've just studied. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the blessing of your power and might and grace and mercy. Thank you also for your justice. Thank you for the blessing of your willingness to send Christ, that we would be redeemed to you, that you would be our Savior. God, thank you for the truth of covenant, the way that you interact with us. Thank you for the truth of the scriptures. Please help us to know them and understand them, that we might praise you better. All to your glory, in Christ's name. Amen.